American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by a new conversationalist, Rod Dreher, whom I came to know because of my mentor, Peter Lawler. I read Rod Peter's essays about you, his reviews of your books, and I went back, especially last week, almost 20 years, to your early days as the author of crunchy conservatives and I thought not just as always thank God Peter was there to point me to people I might have missed or to ideas that I might not have taken sufficiently seriously but also what a wonderful thing that this keeps happening that I meet people because of Peter it makes for friendships and conversations like this I'm very happy to have met you briefly in Rome at the recent National Conservatives Conference we'll get to that But I think this would be the place to start. How do you think about the last almost 20 years, the ideas you put forward in Crunchy Conservatives, the manifesto, and how you think they have fared and they might be faring in the near future? You know, Titus, this is the first time I have been asked about Crunchy Cons in many years. But it's (laughs) and, and I appreciate you asking me about it. Because, you know, it's really interesting when I travel around the U.S. and even in some places overseas for different conferences and I meet people, someone inevitably comes up to me and says, CrunchyCon's really influenced me. I love hearing that because the book, it wasn't a huge seller here in America when it came out in 2006. It did okay, but it wasn't a huge seller. And yet I have found that of all the books I've written, that's the one that seems to have made the most lasting impression on people. So um, back then with this crunchy cons idea, it, uh, the word crunchy cons is just a catchphrase to describe a traditionalist conservatism, a sort of conservatism that predates the 1960s and certainly Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. Most people's idea of conservatism is really right-wing liberalism. But what I try to do with CrunchyCons is make a case for ordinary people, not just political theorists, but for ordinary people, that there is an older tradition of conservatism that doesn't see the free market and libertarian morals as the ultimate good, but rather sees the health of the culture the health of religion, the health of the family as the measure of the goodness of a society. And in some cases, it requires us to stand against free market dogmas to conserve the family and faith. This is a sort of thing that was not radical in Europe at all, but in the U.S., certainly in 2006, it was seen as fairly radical. I got some harsh criticism from some on the right, They thought I was some sort of left-winger in disguise. But in fact, my ideas went very well with Catholic social teaching. But, you know, the United States is a very liberal country, classically liberal in the sense that even our right-wingers are liberals, philosophical liberals. So uh, the book got heavily criticized on the right, but others on the right, usually younger people, I was a younger man when I wrote it, they understood it deeply. And usually younger Catholics understood it. They found in it a sense of validation that the way they saw the world, even as conservatives, was not crazy, that in fact, it had a very deep and long tradition within political thought. So I feel that the things that have happened since Crunchy Cons came out have in some sense validated the prescriptions I made there. We've seen the Republican Party fall apart. It is not the same party it was in 2006. People don't have the same faith in classical liberalism that they once did, and they certainly don't have the unquestioning faith that the free market is going to save us. I think people are now looking for an alternative. Some, unfortunately, are turning to democratic socialism. But I think that we on the right, if we go deeper into our tradition, we have something even better to offer. Yeah, I think you're right. Looking over this essay, first of all, I read it to my wife who said, well, we're sort of crunchy cons, aren't we? And how about these are friends? How about these other ones of our friends? They homeschool their kids or these other people have gotten back to more natural ways of eating, less industrial, certainly, and moving out of cities and taking faith seriously and thinking about education and where you live in such a way that your kids will also be able to share in your faith rather than be sucked into an anti-Christian culture in, in the places where that's the case. So a lot of the things that you talk about have become far more current, a lot of them have become almost Republican ideology at this point, like homeschooling. Right. It's in the mainstream now, for sure. Exactly. 
And I think, well, you know, how about the other ones? Other things that could be called small is beautiful in a countercultural phrase, or we could talk about localism and subsidiarity as Catholic social thought, as you mentioned, or of course we could talk about Russell Kirk and Wendell Berry. All of these ideas are far likelier to become practices now. Indeed, a lot of people do practice them. As I mentioned before we started the conversation, one of the things that immediately struck me thinking about your CrunchyCon ideas, America is moving to the South. America is moving out of massive cities. The most liberal parts of the country are losing population due to in-migration. It happened 10 years ago, it's going to happen again this year. The census the last time gave red states about a 10 electoral vote net-net advantage and it's going to happen again. This is not because Republicans are that great. It's not because Democrats are necessarily that bad, but it's because people want a different kind of way of life. Now, of course, some people do want, especially in their youth, to live in big cities, to be in urban areas that are full of novelty. But I think mostly people will go for something that's American, having a home, checking a number of the boxes that you're talking about. So I think that crunch conservatism actually has far more of a future than people realize, but also than our libertarian friends and adversaries were willing to grant at the time or might be willing to grant even now. There's quite a demand in America for, indeed, another way of thinking about community. It's not that the Republicans or the country is going to turn simply against capitalism or the free market or what have you, but they will want a more solid basis. They will want, I think, the family rather than simply the individual worker to be a concern of the economy and of social policy. Yeah, you know, as we speak about this, I'm realizing that our society is becoming more extreme at both ends. I mean, yes, it's true that the sort of crunchy con ideas are becoming more acceptable, more widely known, and more practiced among a growing number of people. It is also the case that what was once a solid mainstream is fragmenting much more and moving much more to the left and towards individuality and the breakdown of the family. And I think this is happening primarily because of the internet. We're not going to stop the internet. We're not going to turn it away. In fact, the internet in some ways makes it possible to build these smaller communities via homeschooling and things like that. But I don't want to give the impression, Titus, that life is okay in small town America. You know, I'm talking to you now from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is the capital of my home state in the Deep South. It's a city of 350,000. We moved here from my hometown, which is a very small town on the Mississippi River north of Baton Rouge out in the country. It's a great town. I love it there. But what a lot of people may not realize is that even though the culture in some ways is more traditional there, it is also a culture that has been completely captured by the Internet. They already have in the local middle school gay couples going to the dances. You have transgender kids in the school. And interestingly enough, the fact that it is a small community where people do stay closer together, this has made it harder to be countercultural. In other words, we homeschooled when we lived there, and that put us very much on the margins of the local community because most people send their kids to the community public school. It's a difficult thing. We found it easier when we moved into the city after my father died and our little parish there collapsed. We moved into the city to be closer to the nearest Orthodox parish. I'm Eastern Orthodox. And we found it easier to find people who shared our beliefs living in the big city than living in the country. So it's a complicated thing. I think the ideal situation would be if communities of families who shared the same faith, Catholic or whatever, could move out to the countryside and live a healthier life closer to nature and be together. But, you know, we can't let the ideal be the enemy of the good enough. And when I talk about the Benedict Option, my more recent book, I find that people who are interested in the Benedict Option tend to find it easier to find other like-minded people to form community with in the big city. Yeah, I think you get to a number of important things here. One of them is that, indeed, it's not the case that small-town life is idyllic, nor that traditional. And part of it is, as you said, even in the smallest places in America, you're directly globalized on the Internet. And that can be a very strange experience, and you don't know exactly how things will turn. Nor will it be easy for people to form new communities, to find people who share their faith and who want to live it. And so I think you're right that ideas of community will have to be applied to the circumstances. 
will have to allow people to improve in a livable way, in a practical way, and through enduring and through forming things that last, gradually go in the direction that we would like to see. That is to say, some restoration of normality, of tradition, a pace of life that's less hectic, and perhaps a bit less uncertainty that's driving people crazy. As you say, one of the problems we're facing now is that the way Americans are reacting to the collapse of that mid-century liberalism that for so long had big institutions, a lot of consensus, great self-confidence, a lot of the reaction to that is crazy. A lot of people are looking for identities, including in all the wrong places. So we need something like CrunchyCon, something like the Benedict Option, and however many other things people are willing to attempt for the sake of restoring normality, not just because they'll give us better things, whether it's homeschooling or communities that are more serious about faith, but we also need these sorts of ideas and attempts in a defensive way, because we are faced with something that our friend James Poulos calls the pink police state. We're faced with all sorts of attacks on what was taken for granted until the day before yesterday. Right, right. One thing that drives me crazy about so many of my fellow conservatives is that we have this idea that if we only vote for the right politician, that will be sufficient to protect us. In fact, we have seen president after president of the Republican Party get elected, even as the culture is declining more and more. The fact is, voting for the right politician is necessary, but it's not sufficient. You know, uh, Donald Trump cannot stop this great movement of culture that is erasing our traditions and radically changing the way our children see the family, see the church, and even see themselves and their own sexual identity. The best that a politician can do is create the structures within which small communities, churches, families, other institutions of civil society can regenerate a strong society. Someone told me once that Viktor Orban said about the limits of politics, look, I can give people things, but I can't give them meaning. And I thought that was a very wise thing to say that, you know, people who look to politics for meaning in their lives are looking in the wrong place. And they will ultimately be, I think, susceptible to totalitarianism, because that's what happens when you try to make a religion of politics to find ultimate meaning in politics. Instead, I think what proper conservatives should do is recognize the limits of the state and, yes, vote for politicians who will stand up for religious liberty, stand up for freedom of association, and use those liberties to build strong institutions of civil society locally, like good classical Christian schools or homeschool associations, like strengthening your parish, and so on and so forth. That's the only thing that's going to resist this pink police state that we see coming. Yeah, that's a very good point. We need politics and politicians, and that must necessarily occupy a lot of public discourse, a lot of what journals and websites talk about. But that puts us in danger in a way because we end up hoping that they can accomplish more than they actually can accomplish. And in a way, it lets us off the hook. You don't need to talk about certain other things or organize for certain other purposes because we did the right political thing in the voting. Exactly. T.S. Eliot had the famous line saying that we dream of a system so perfect that we don't have to be good. I think that conservatives can be guilty of that too. Yeah, we're stuck in this sort of situation where we find it difficult to create conservative institutions. We'll complain about the culture that liberals or progressives dominated, but we don't really create cultural institutions to rival them, to offer people a better alternative. But on the other hand, we have the strange belief in certain kinds of institutions, in systems, and the more mysterious the better, and the free market above all. Things are going to work out. Well, maybe not. Maybe we'll have to rely on resources that are less mysterious, more tangible, but demand more of us. Right. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I see happen a lot is even conservative Christian parents will complain about how corrupting the popular culture is of their children. But then they expect the Christian school or the local parish to do all the work of raising their children alone without the parents really being involved beyond dropping their kids off for Sunday school or writing a tuition check. It can't work that way. We have to have church and school and family working together in a symphony to form our children and to form ourselves. But so many of us, we want to outsource these difficult tasks so we don't have to do the hard work of personal conversion. 
yeah, it's understandable in a way because you have to have certain opinions that you act on in order to deal with community, with institutions, with your family, with education, with all these things. And opinions are debatable. It could be this way, but it might be another way. If you have a strong opinion, you might raise a strong reaction. And people might want something that's not debatable, something more objective, something more mechanical. And in a way, the simple fact that you have to develop judgment, have experience, use it, persuade other people, which takes time. People might disagree. The difficulty and the uncertainty built into the opinions required for a community work against what we're trying to achieve, and people will often be tempted to give up. Yes. That's, I think, a serious danger that we will have to face more and more the more we have any kind of success, because success will continuously mean, can we really keep this up? Are we really starting an institution that will flourish? Will we devote ourselves to it? Will it achieve what we want of it? That's the danger and that's the risk we have to take if we are going to get what we want out of life, not from a politician, not simply from a political process, a vote, a court, an election, or indeed a party. Well, you're right about that. And I think one of the enemies that we face within ourselves is an effect of living in the time that we do. We expect instant results. And if we don't get instant results, then we lose heart or we, we move on to something else. I go back to think about St. Benedict. When you and I met in Rome, I had just been to Subiaco, to the holy cave where Benedict retreated when he left the city of Rome to live as a hermit for three years, trying to discern God's will for him. It was a powerful moment for me to be at that cave and to pray and to think about Benedict and to think about what God brought out of that little hole at the side of a mountain in the forest of Italy. He brought cultural renewal, but it took several hundred years for it to become widespread in Western Europe. But St. Benedict didn't go into that cave and come out thinking, I have a plan to save Western culture. No, he only went into the cave wondering, what is God asking me to do? How can I best search for God? And when he came out, he wrote his rule because he thought that this was a good way to keep us on the search for God. And over time, over the slow, slow, organic work of conversion and missionary work, only then were we able to see the fruits of Benedict's original vision in the cave. In a similar way, I think the things we start right now, whether it's the classical schools, homeschooling, different initiatives we start now, we have to have patience. They're going to take a long time to prove themselves. The first time I heard you talk about the Benedict option, I thought this is something Tocqueville would approve of. It reminded me that Tocqueville saw Christianity not as organizing the fear of hell, terrorizing people in this sort of easy mockery that was typical of the Enlightenment. But he said, no, Christianity is what gives people hope. Just look at America. People believe that they can start something and that it will have a future, that it will flourish, that it has a kind of providential protection. It gives people hope to act. It gives them a strength, their faith that they are not merely the playthings of cosmic forces. They are not merely living at random. And therefore, they have a chance to succeed in, in doing good things for themselves and for others, and learning from that success to believe that it has a future. We can keep this going. And that kind of faith indeed requires a lot of patience, but also rewards patience, because you will have the evidence. And so this is, I think, you're right, a time to start things. Well, you know, I'm working on this book now called Live Not By Lies, based on my interviews with Christians who survived communism in Eastern Europe and also the Soviet Union. It's been an incredible experience for me to travel in the former Soviet bloc and in Russia and talk to Christians who had to endure great persecution and hold on to their faith in the face of that sort of thing. One of the amazing things I learned in Bratislava I met with this young Catholic photographer, Timotej Krishka. Timo has come out with a book recently of photographs he took of elderly people who had been through communist prison camps for their faith and held on to their faith. He went to photograph them and to interview them. And uh, Timo told me when I interviewed him for my book, he said, you know, I'm the child of democracy. I grew up in a free Slovakia, but I realized that I was so driven by anxiety over worldly success that I was not happy. But when I went to visit these people who had suffered from total deprivation, they had been sent to prison and had everything taken from them, yet they were happy. 
I learned the secret of happiness is to be happy with the Lord, to be happy with God, and to welcome material deprivation as an opportunity to deepen our connection to God. Timo still lives in a free Slovakia, but he said it radically changed his life and made him change his life and the practices of his life as a young Catholic father to free himself from what Pope Benedict called the dictatorship of relativism, but also this sort of slavery to the passions we have of trying to get ahead, of measuring our success on the basis of what we have managed to achieve professionally, what things we've managed to accumulate in our homes, and rather to look to something eternal for our reward. Yeah, I think you're right. That has got to be at the bedrock level what orients community. You have to be aware of the continuity of humanity. Uh, we have a certain desire for eternity. We don't make things just to trash them, just to destroy them, just to see them go. We want things that last and have a certain intuition that the things that last are worth more, not just to us, but in themselves. They speak to important truths about us and about the world and our longing for God, ultimately, yeah. the deepest desire of the heart. Well, yes, and yes, you're, you're right about that. And the thing to me, though, and, and this is something I struggle with myself here as we're, we're into Lent now, is learning to embrace loss and suffering as a way to holiness. This is one of the most obvious and deepest teachings of Christianity, but it's one of the most difficult ones to hold on to in our culture, a culture of wealth and liberty, in which we feel anxious if we have any suffering at all. You know, I once interviewed a very famous French intellectual. We had a conversation, actually, in Paris in 2017 when I was there doing my book tour for the Benedict Option. And this man is an atheist, but a very intelligent guy, one of the top intellectuals in his country. And we both talked about the crisis facing France and the West in general, first of all, from radical Islam, but perhaps even more strongly from the loss of any sense of eternity, a loss of a sense of transcendence, a loss of community. Finally, I asked him, I said, sir, where do you find hope? He said to me, I have no hope. And I, I was shocked by that, but he was being very honest. I told him, I do have hope. My hope is in Jesus Christ. But please don't think that I'm saying that to you like an American TV evangelist. I'm not optimistic about the future, but because I'm a Christian, I believe that when we join our sufferings to Christ, there is our hope. Our sufferings do have meaning, and God will ultimately use it for our salvation and for the redemption of the world. Well, the professor looked at me and he said, well, that's very good for you Americans, but here in France, we believe that this life is all there is. When you're dead, it's over. And I thought to you, well, I can't help this man. If he is so convinced that there is no transcendent dimension to life, then of course he has no hope. I don't see why he wouldn't kill himself. But this is why I'm trying really hard this Lent to go deeper into the things I've learned from people who suffered under communism and to take those lessons about suffering and the redemptive power of suffering and apply it to my own life. That's a very French thing to do, right? A man who is intellectually serious, morally honest, and at the same time, depressive. It's uh, <laughs> this kind of honesty just seems like indeed, why do you even live? It leads to a crisis. So that's a very good example of the difference, I guess, between being American and being French. It does illustrate the importance of faith for a life that opens up to further lives in the future and is open to learning from lives in the past. There's a connection between our desire to retrieve certain pre-modern things, like you're talking about uh, St. Benedict of Nursia. We want to retrieve certain medieval things because not everything that came with modernity is good. Not everything is bad, but there are certain problems and resources that come from before those times are very much needed now. And we think that in some way we are connected with those people. In some way there is a continuity, there is a tradition that we could bring back. And because we have a continuity with our past, we have a continuity with the future as well. And some of that is hope. Some of that requires that we try things in the belief that being human is good all in all. Not perfect, certainly in need of grace, but not doomed to hopelessness. Right. Not doomed to passivity either. That's a necessity for lives, both at the individual and at the collective level. 
It's as much something that I have to wrestle with myself asking, you know, what do I live for as it is as a community when we ask ourselves, what should we be talking about? What are the things that we should be doing? All of these actions and deliberations follow from certain beliefs and at the bedrock level is our longing for God and our hope in grace. That's beautifully said. And, you know, I, in Crunchy Cons, the saying at the beginning of the book is a quote, I believe, comes from Balzac. He says, hope is memory plus desire. And it's a profound saying, you know, it says to us that if we can reclaim the cultural memory that we had in the past, memory of when times were better, there was no perfect time, but when times were better, when the community was more whole, when we knew God more intimately than we do now, and we desire to reclaim that, then we have reason to hope. And I think we certainly have reason to hope in that sense. And we see it happening right now. When I travel around Europe to talk about the Benedict Option, I find that my audiences are almost always Catholics under the age of 40. And that's really interesting. I I couldn't figure it out at first, but then finally I realized that Catholics who are older than 40, who are my age and older, tend to have a lot invested in maintaining the current bourgeois order. But those who are younger don't yet have that. So they're open to a more radical way of seeing themselves, and they are able to desire Christ in a way that is not conditioned by the expectation or the longing for social acceptance. And they are reaching back into the past to sometimes to the Latin Mass, sometimes to other traditions, looking for ways that they can live Christ authentically in a post-Christian time. I find that younger Catholics and younger Christians of all confessions tend to be more hopeful, not just because they're young and young people are idealistic, but because they are not as bound as people my age and older are to the structures of the world. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. The generational change is still much underrated, partly because communities of Christians are now really a minority option and therefore easily ignored. And in a way, they need to be ignored by both sides. The progressive attitude cannot square with the fact that many new things that are in some sense progressive are Christian rather than atheistic. But it's also the case on the conservative side that people don't want to square with the fact that the institutions of faith have been collapsing or weakening massively over the last two generations. And it's only a small part that seems to be thriving, flourishing, even in this new sort of harrowed, empty land. This small option is there and they are the future. At least that's one seriously, plausibly conservative solution to the problems we're facing. You know, Titus, I, uh, I'm dedicating this next book I have coming out to an amazing Croatian Catholic priest named Father Tomislav Kolakovic. I spoke of him at my talk in Rome, which you heard. Father Kolakovic yes. was a Croatian Jesuit who was in 1943 doing anti-Nazi work in his native country. He got a tip that the Gestapo was looking for him, so he escaped to Czechoslovakia, his mother's homeland, moved to Bratislava, changed his name to use his mother's name, Kolakovic, and began working among the Catholic students there. And what he told them in 1943 was that the Germans are going to lose this war. That's good news. The bad news is communists are going to rule our country. So we have to prepare for it now because the first thing they're going to do is persecute the church. So what Father Kolakovic did was set up small cells, groups of young Catholics who would come together to pray, to read scripture, to hear lectures about the teachings of the church and other teachings, and to establish a network across the country of other young Catholics who would be able to work together when the persecution came. And in fact, everything Kolakovic said was going to happen did happen. In 1948, communists took over Czechoslovakia and they immediately came down hard on the church. But here's the genius of what Kolakovic did. When he began his ministry, some priests in the Slovak Catholic Church were critical of him. They were anxious that he was giving too much power to the laity. You know, he was giving them too much say over the direction of their spiritual lives. And he tried to tell them, look, I've studied communism. I know what's going to happen. They're going to clamp down on the clergy and the lay people will not know what to do. Kolakovic said, I'm trying to prepare the laity to continue the life of the church when the clergy has been paralyzed. Do you know, Titus, that when the communists took power, they did exactly what he said, 
they made it against the law for priests to even speak about the faith outside of the church building. The underground church structure in Slovakia was set up by Father Kolakovich's followers, and they maintained the faith in a strong way and a way of resistance throughout the 40 years of communism. I think that today we have to read the signs of the times and do just as Father Kolakovich did, start these cells, groups of faithful believers and network them while we still can so we will be able to resist the persecution that I am afraid is coming at some point in the near future. I can confirm some of this. I was born and raised in Bucharest in Romania, a baby when communism was over and capitalism and democracy came. I'm glad that it happened. It's better to be a capitalist democrat than it was to be stuck as a slave to communists. But over the years, I have noticed, since I'm still split between Europe and America, that people in previous generations were much stronger. It's true of Americans, of course, not just of people who had to suffer during communism. There was more harshness, admittedly, but there was also more willingness to suffer, less complaining, And seeing old people in countries harrowed by communism, they still had a certain capacity for joy. Mm. They were not as anxious and as self-loathing as people are today. They wouldn't be screaming insanities and advertising mental health on social media as a form of chic, as (laughs) is happening now. So there are certain things that you learn from suffering. There are certain virtues that only come by suffering. And you don't have to be a Christian for this. Anybody could notice this. Indeed, the first of the ethical virtues in Aristotle's ethics is manliness, courage, the willingness to face certain dangers because you need to have a certain toughness. Before you can get clever, you have to roll with the punches. You need a certain endurance. And indeed, you also need, as you suggest, a plan. I see it in Orthodox communities in Bucharest as well. People reaching into the past, forming communities that live together right now as families, helping each other, worshipping together. You see their, their love of ritual and of liturgy and their yearning to learn something from the examples of saints, to learn from the past. Because they also sense that there's something really rotten happening. There's something in the air that's worrying people. Mm-hmm. We're not solid. We've lost our confidence. In a way, we owed that to mid-century liberalism. Even if we didn't like liberals and what they did or how they treated us, they were so confident. The whole world was swept up in their confidence because America was the guarantee of freedom anywhere. But now there's no confidence of that character left. And we are indeed facing the pink police state. We are indeed facing what Peter Lawler called the liberal libertarian convergence, where lifestyle choices are not just encouraged, but enforced with state power, with agencies and with courts of law that will try to destroy the lives of traditional Christians, partly for fun, partly for profit or prestige or advancement, but partly because you need something to do. It occupies the time to destroy the beliefs of traditionalists, to treat normal people like they're the devil. Our progressive friends and adversaries are not just atheistic, but they have all the righteousness of inquisitors. Certain parts of Puritanism and Christianity have never gone away and maybe never will go away in America. It's partly why the country is dedicated to freedom, but partly it's what encourages people to destroy communities and to destroy ways of life just to prove that they're morally superior because you can scream at somebody, call him names, and then ruin him. Yes, that's true, and that is certainly what's happening right now. And as I was doing research for this next book, I was really surprised to learn about how the Bolsheviks were like a religious cult. They were an apocalyptic millenarian religious cult without God. Reading about the writings of the early Bolsheviks, I saw a direct parallel between the sort of things that our so-called social justice warriors here in the 21st century, what they have to say. That sense of moral certitude, that utopianism, that idea that if we can only get rid of the bad people, then we will live in utopia. This is what is coming now from the progressives against people of traditional faith, people of traditional culture. They think that we really are what's wrong with the world. One way I see that in America, at least, we're susceptible to this is that our idea of totalitarianism comes from the Cold War. It comes from Stalinism. It comes from George Orwell's 1984. We think that the state is going to be the only persecutor. In fact, what we're seeing emerge now in this pink police state 
is it's not only the state, it may not even be mainly the state, but it's also big business, corporations, universities, the media, social media, pushing this ideology and persecuting any dissenters. You know, the Covington Catholic boys about a year ago were in Washington, D.C. for the annual pro-life march. They were wearing Trump hats. By the time this thing went viral on social media, there were people calling for their death, these boys. In fact, they were completely innocent. They had done nothing wrong. That wasn't the government trying to persecute them, making death threats against them. That was liberals in the media and elsewhere. So this is a kind of totalitarianism that we have to be prepared for. We have to see it happen, and we have to figure out how to resist it. But if we're just expecting it only to come from the state, we're no better than the French behind the Maginot line thinking that they're ready for the German army, when in fact the German army is going to come right behind them and conquer the country. Yeah, that is a very good point, that the American idea of totalitarianism is after it has been installed and it has these shocking powers. People never ask themselves, how did it start? You know, Stalin wasn't born the tyrant of a, a large chunk of the planet. Mm -hmm. It took a long time to get there. And we are indeed going to see and learn the hard way a lot of what was attractive about communism, about Bolshevism, and a lot that's attractive about radical politics. Americans believe that because they won the Cold War and they didn't even have to fight the Soviet Union in a big war like Japan or Germany, that it's all over and it was easy. But the reality is far more dangerous because indeed we see now in America, people are looking for some kind of future. They don't believe the things that their fathers or grandfathers believe. They want some new identity. They want something to do with their lives. Mm -hmm. And crazy ideas become attractive in a way you see what, what's so strange about the pink police state is that it allies barbaric ideas to high-tech liberalism. Yes. Every sexual deviation is now a policy of enlightenment of a certain kind. The sorts of things that civilization put an end to in order to treat human beings with respect and to tame sexual madness is now advertised as empowerment and possibly a new form of forming communities, uh, little polyamory groups, polycules. All these crazy ideas are as likely to be on the pages of the New York Times as in the heads of some uh, crazy people on campus. The problem indeed with the pink police state is that it's in people's heads that yes. want it. A lot of people who have ambition and who kind of hate the fact that they're never going to get that job. They're never going to be celebrities in Hollywood. They're never going to have a column in the New York Times. They're never going to have prestige like liberals used to have before. And they can't be satisfied because there's way more people on social media than there ever were in entertainment before. You can have a few stars, you can have many celebrities, but when you have millions of influencers on social media, there's not enough to go around. That disappointment of that ambition, of that desire to be heard and listened to and make a difference, you know, it does lead in this crazy direction because it is allied to a certain form of madness. I think about the liberal shift towards the new orthodoxy of transgenderism. And, you know, at some level you could say, well, these are all college educated people. You could ask them in a reasonable way. Didn't you people tell us in 2015 that the natural is what happens spontaneously? Or as the theologian Lady Gaga says, I was born that way. <laughs> The natural is the spontaneously occurring, the natural is the standard of justice, of political right, of Supreme Court decisions and good morality. So homosexual marriage is a necessity in America. And the day after that they turned and said, no, actually nature is the worst thing in world history. The nature traps you in the body of a man or a woman when in fact you're a woman or a man or something else entirely. And you have to act with science and scientific mutilation against the natural, the spontaneously occurring. But pointing out this contradiction is not going to persuade almost anybody. You never hear about it in the news. Intelligent conservatives or liberals never talk about this stuff. And in a way, it's not that they haven't understood it, although maybe they're not that interested in the arguments about nature. But we all sense at some level that there's something deeper going on in this contradiction. Right. Gay marriage meant that you can attack one form of tradition and transgender means that you can attack yet another. And in both cases, you can attack the family as Americans understood it the day before yesterday. It's about freedom. It's about a desperate form of self-creation that includes more and more, not just social destruction, but downright physical mutilation. Yeah, it's ultimately satanic. 
in the sense that, uh, not only a spiritual sense that I think we would agree as Christians it is, but also in a symbolic sense, the idea that I, myself, that my sovereign self will be the Lord and master of everything in my life, even if I have to mutilate my body to assert my own autonomy. You can't have a society that way. You can't live that way. But it looks like we are going to have to go through a time of great suffering in order to beat that heresy or beat that madness. It's just amazing to me, too, Titus, to see how so few conservatives understand the nature of the threat against us. I'm reminded of the establishment in late imperial Russia. In my research on the Bolshevik Revolution, I found that the Marxists couldn't get anybody to listen to them other than you know a few intellectuals in the late 19th century. But then in 1891-92, there was a terrible famine in Russia, and the establishment, the government, could not respond to it competently. And that began to make ordinary people lose faith in the system. And over and over, over the next few years, the system proved more and more rotten. And those who would try to defend it just assumed that everything was going to work out in the end, and they didn't reform the system to save it from the threat of the Bolsheviks. Eventually, we know what happened, and what they replaced the failed system with was a million times worse. My fear is that so many of us conservatives and Christians are like Russians of the late 19th century who didn't really understand how the failures of the system we have now leaves us vulnerable to radical so-called solutions. I see people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, conservatives in America, really thinking that relying on the same sort of dogmas of the 1980s of Reaganism is sufficient to drive away the threat of socialism by Bernie Sanders. In fact, they're not looking at the actual lives that young people in their 20s and 30s trying to start families in this culture where they can't find a foothold. These older conservatives can't understand why they're struggling. I think this is a really dangerous, dangerous position for us older conservatives to be in. Yeah, conservatives are now essentially stuck defending what liberals were defending a couple of years ago. Facebook is great, Twitter is great, social media is private corporations, and that's a great economy, proof of progress, the free market has spoken, we have a future. They don't think it's weird that the public space has been turned in reality into essentially tourism, and the real public space is privately owned by six corporations. Well, it's fine. Well, no, it's not fine. It never happened in America before, so you should pay attention. Right. So also with the lives of young people who are escaping the real America for online America, most of them aren't married. It's not clear that they will be. Maybe the Republican consensus is, it's fine, it's going to be fine, no big deal. But this has never happened in American history. How do they know it's fine? They should be a bit worried. But in a way, perhaps it's impossible to comprehend. There was never an America where the family wasn't the center of society. Well, look around. Right. So in a way, that is why we need to think far more seriously about faith, far more seriously about the resources it offers us and the prospects it opens for us, not just learning for the past, but preparing to suffer. Yeah. To suffer well, to become somewhat more serious and perhaps stronger because the new things that are happening are driving people crazy. But conservatives are now in the position of liberals saying progress is happening, it's great, this is the happiest we've ever been, we're just screaming like crazy and fighting over stuff out of pure hysteria. Really? If you can't explain the big social phenomena, then maybe you're not as smart as you yeah. think you are. And, and you know, we see so few religious leaders, priests, pastors, speaking about gender ideology, speaking about sexuality at all, not just homosexuality, any sexuality. Ordinary people, ordinary families are desperate for guidance from their religious leaders. Help us understand what's happening. Help us understand what a proper Christian response is. But religious leaders are so afraid to be judged as being too negative that instead they just talk about very general things, general moralistic uplift, and leave families out there to try to navigate this terrible, terrible darkness on their own. I think that we're making a big mistake if we're gonna sit around waiting for the clergy, the institutional church, to understand what's happening and act on it. Instead, we faithful lay people have to act on our own to protect ourselves and our families not to act in opposition to the institutional church, 
but rather to do for ourselves and for our communities what, for whatever reason, the institutional churches have lost the courage or the focus to do. Yeah, I think that is something that's systemic. Our elites are corrupt. Some are incompetent, some are wicked, some are a combination, some are just normal people who have seen things that most normal people don't see and are kind of scared and don't want to notice, don't want to think about it, don't want to react to what they have learned. And the truth is America has put so much faith in systems. Liberals love the government, conservatives love the free market, but it's always about invisible systems that mean that you and I and everybody else don't need to worry. Well, but that means that some people at the top running these things do have to worry. And if they lose their faith in America and in mankind and in God, things might turn very ugly. It's one thing to have a kind of chic nihilism in college. It's one thing to have people who think atheism is cool. That's one kind of crazy, but it's another kind of crazy if elites turn nihilistic. Yes. And that is a much bigger danger, and it's one that America isn't prepared for. You're right. We all believe that, you know, we're all the same. It's America. We're in this together and nobody is especially responsible. We all know that whenever some public person says, I take responsibility, what they mean is I won't take responsibility. Yes. I'm not resigning. I'm not going to get fired. I'm going to get a golden parachute or another election or whatever. And the reason people aren't angry at that is because it reassures them. If politicians are stupid, corrupt, incompetent, you know, big CEOs are the same, then you know what? They're the same as you and me. It's strangely reassuring at the moral level that these people uh, are, are no better than you and me. But, you know, who's running the ship? So, indeed, we need new elites. And part of that, this is the thing that I am most grateful for, reading your books, hearing you speak, thinking about the stuff you're saying. Elites are not the people who were conformist to an institution. Elites are the people who help other people, the people who lead a community by consent. They have something to offer that people flock to. And I think that's something that people will have to learn again. Communities of faith, new ideas about how to work, new political ideas, whether at city or state or federal level, new intellectual currents. Leadership and new elites will mean people who can persuade other people that they have something real to offer and who will be known by their fruits. So it's a time to start new things and see which ones can attract the kind of devotion and uh, talent required. I think you're exactly right. This is a time of experimentation, a time that requires us to be a lot more serious about our faith than we were before, because for all the problems in the past, there was still a basic generally Christian framework with which to understand our society and what we're supposed to do. That's all gone now. I think the older Christians of the baby boomer generation, they don't fully understand how radically things have changed. I'm Generation X. I'm 53 years old. I'm still learning how radically things have changed. Just a few years ago, Titus, I was at a uh, conservative evangelical college in the upper Midwest in the U.S. I've never been evangelical, so I tend to sort of romanticize them as being very rigorous about their faith. But I was having dinner with some professors before my speech, and I asked them what they thought the biggest challenges facing their evangelical students would be in the future. And one of the professors said, forming stable families. He said, I don't think that most of them are going to be able to do it. And I said, that's really shocking to me. Why, why would you say that? He said, because most of them have never seen a stable family. And I have to say, Titus, I came from a stable family. I, most everybody I know came from a stable family, but we're middle-class people in middle age. These professors explained to me that most of these kids coming to them are the products of multiple divorces in their families. They just don't have that same expectation that a family can be solid, can endure suffering without breaking apart. And the fact that they don't have examples in front of them means that they have no reason to hope. This is not the inner city that we would have had decades ago. We, this would have only been a problem for the inner city. These are among middle-class white evangelicals in the American Midwest. So the rot is very, very deep, deeper, I think, than many of us in positions of power and influence quite realize. Yeah, these are things that we should be talking about because indeed now whether you are black or white or Hispanic, it's a terrible situation. It's something we need to talk about while understanding that talking can't fix these things because you cannot go back to somebody's childhood and give them a better father or a better mother. Right. 
all of these wake-up calls have certain things in common. They remind us that you can't go through life wishfully. Fantasies really don't come through that often, and many of the fantasies that come through are terrifying. Right. Many of the stuff that people do will have consequences for them, for their children, for society, starting with the neighbors and going down after a generation of American divorce to everybody. That's something we have to deal with now. It's not just liberals who think that freedom of personal action in your lifestyle is not going to have any bad consequences that last for anybody. Conservatives who think that criticizing liberals can wishfully make this world disappear are also deluded. Yes. This is the world we're going to deal with. It's very important to start seeing it and to accept this fact. There are certain hardships, necessities. You can say, well, bad policy caused this or whatever it is that people could say by way of explanation. The good explanations we should have, we should treasure them. But that doesn't mean you can change things by explaining or by words. You have to accept that these things are now the necessity. They are the situation we cannot escape and we have to go through it. That's well said. You cannot change things only by words. I think also by practices, and the practices include suffering, include putting disciplines on ourselves that compel us to deny ourselves for the sake of a higher good. That is a profoundly countercultural thing to do in this culture of complete self-fulfillment, to live by a higher standard and to say no to things. And it's a great lesson for us here at the start of Lent to meditate on. I have found in talking to the Christians who suffered under communism, that was the thing that got them through, that belief that if you receive it right, suffering and limitation, whether it's suffering physically in your body or suffering a loss of status in society, this is a way to Christ. Some of these people lost their jobs and had to do very humble, miserable work for the rest of their lives, but they did it for the sake of Christ, and they found inner peace and deep meaning at a level that people who may have been at the very top of the system and had every possible material advantage did not have. Yeah, the glamour and ideology of fear of missing out, FOMO, is a depressive and deluded thing, and a lot of people will wake up out of it one way or another. Vast numbers of people in America have been living on fantasies, on delusions. And it's not going to be easy to wake up. And it would be great if as people wake up, there are institutions that tell them suffering is not the worst thing in the world. Missing out is not actually that bad. It will focus you on what's serious, not the latest novelty, not the latest silliness. Yep. And, and that sort of hardship that breeds hardihood is simply a necessity. It will take people who have the example, the practices, as you say, who have networks, who have trust, who have loyalty, who have friends, who have communities to prove that point. This is not something you can argue your way out of. You can only argue your way into starting something practical. That's what the help can be. You can argue for that practice in order to persuade other people or defend them. But the practice is the thing that matters. You know, you're a film critic and uh, you, you might appreciate this. When I saw the recent Terrence Malick film, A Hidden Life, about the blessed Franz Jägerstädter, who died as a martyr, killed by the Nazis for his faith, I thought this is exactly what we need. This is an illustration of what I mean by the Benedict Option. Franz Jägerstädter was an ordinary Austrian Catholic like everybody else in his village. It, he could not escape Nazism. Even though they lived at the top of a mountain in Austria, Nazism came to them. The difference was that Franz, because of the way he and his family had been living as Catholics before the Nazis came, he was able to see the threat when it arrived, and he found the strength to resist it. Whereas everybody else in the village, all of them churchgoers, it seems, they succumbed to the Nazism because for whatever reason, they didn't have within themselves what it took to resist. I think in the film, the key moment is when Franz goes into the church and he sees a man painting Bible stories on the walls of the church. And the artist tells him, you know, I'm painting these because the people will admire Christ. They admire the stories in the Bible. But Christ doesn't want admirers. Christ wants followers. And you prove that you're a follower of Christ by being willing to suffer for him. That's the secret right there. Franz Jägerstädter and his family, they were not admirers of Jesus Christ. They were followers of Jesus Christ. And that was proven by their practices before the Nazis came and their practices of being willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel after the persecution began. That movie, I think, models for us what we must do and what we must not do. 
It's a wonderful movie. I was just before we met in Rome, I was in Paris and the wife and I went to this midnight showing. And, you know, it's the best Malik thing because it's about a real person. Right. It's not just art. It's a real story. And such a good example of what you are saying. Live not by lies. Now and then people fail. Now and then an entire community goes to hell and they will need somebody, even if they don't understand it, even if they hate that guy. Like his fellow villagers at some point hate Franz. And yet they need him, even if they don't know him. Yes. Martyrdom is necessary. Somebody has to die for what we all know morally to be true, but are too weak to deal with. There's no way around it. It's a remarkably fitting thing for our times. I've been talking about it with my friend Flack Taylor, who is part of the foundation and is often on the podcast, who's worked a lot on Benda. We're going to do a podcast on it, and I hope a lot of people will see that movie because indeed it shows you how in, in a simple life, a life without sophistication or glamour, you can breed these great virtues. Yes, Václav Benda, the Benda family, is a real model for all of us about how a family can faithfully resist totalitarianism. I'm so glad to know that you're friends with Flag Taylor. He's a friend of mine, too, and he was tremendously helpful in introducing me to the Benda family and to the broader community of resistors in the Czech Republic. Yeah, I thought that might be the case because he had uh, this book out, uh, The Long Night of the Watchman, the Benda essays, and we've been talking about it, and I thought he surely knows Rod. And you know why I thought so? Because of how I met Flag through Peter Lawler. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably the same way I met him, too. Peter had this remarkable virtue of not only making friends, but making his friends friends among themselves. I cannot tell you how many people I am friends with because of Peter. And I keep meeting people, although he's been dead almost three years now, this continues. That is a remarkable thing, a testament to the man's touch of greatness, and uh, an occasion always to remember him and to try to do likewise. Yes, yes, the, the grace that came through him is remarkable. And I try to be the same way in the sense that when I travel and meet people, I try to connect them to other people I know who are thinking in the same way, because we need each other. We need these networks, first of all, to be for, for the sake of friendship, and encouragement, but also, I'm afraid, in hard times, we're going to need to be able to trust each other in ways that haven't yet revealed themselves to us, but I'm afraid they will. Yeah, I think people are not yet ready to understand that sometimes faith is really a conspiracy. You're living in secret. You're not public. People don't applaud you. You don't get the words or respect for it. The opposite. Yeah. <laughs> but we are indeed learning that. Yes. <laughs> Well, Rod, this was a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for taking the time. And I will bother you about talking again, say, when your book comes out. And I will talk to my Orthodox friends in Bucharest to invite you over to give a speech if you're touring with your book in Europe. They'll tell you about the Orthodox communities they know in America. Well. I would love to do it. In my book, I have uh, quotes from one of your countrymen, Father George Calchu an Orthodox priest who was sent to the Gulag by the communists. He suffered mm -hmm. torture in Pitesh. And it was eventually expelled by Ceausescu to America. A few years ago, after he died, a book of his lectures, his sermons came out. And it's just so full of wisdom and beauty and that testimony to faith under fire. One of the great things Father George said was in the Gulag, nobody cared who was Orthodox, who was Catholic, who was Protestant. The thing that they focused on was the fact that they were all brothers in Christ and all suffering for Christ. And I think that is the sort of mindset that I want to approach my work with. You know, I, I'm an Orthodox Christian. I believe in the Orthodox faith. But more than that, right now, I believe that it's important for all of us who love Christ faithfully to build on what we have in common. Because, in fact, Metropolitan Hilarion of the Russian Orthodox Church has said exactly this about Europe. He said it's more important now for believers to come together to stand against this sort of militant atheism and secularism that's attacking all of us than it is for us to attack each other. And I think that's just practical wisdom right there. Well, yeah, and it maybe is only learned in suffering, but it does certainly focus your mind that we are now in the situation where we see that belief in Christ essentially affirms the goodness of being human and is the only shield we have against a transhumanism that's increasingly destructive and gloats in this destruction. Yes, exactly. Well, what a great conversation. And uh, um, you keep the faith there in Bucharest, and I wish the same to all of your listeners. And may God bring us together in person, face to face, over the next year. 
thanks a lot, Rod. I'm looking forward to meeting you sometimes. We'll talk about things that have happened since. Good luck with your book, Minoa. Thank you so much. God bless and have a blessed life. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye.